following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. We have all been thinking a lot about leadership lately. Have you ever wondered what is in the heart of a leader, the CEO, the billionaire, the entrepreneur, the politician? They're visionary, they live for the future, they are on the move, they're never content, they make tough decisions, they work long, long hours, they often are task-oriented, they're overprotective parents, like they control those people underneath them, everything revolves around their plans. They're self-confident, they're intolerant of incompetence, they'll fire people underneath them right and left if necessary. Everybody views them as indispensable, and these are the leaders that I just described that also Jesus described in actually Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. Take a look at what Jesus says as he describes them. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Yet Jesus makes it really clear in this passage that this is really not the kind of leader that he's looking for. This is not the type of leadership that is acceptable to him. He goes on to say in Mark chapter 10, he says this, but it is not so among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be what? The slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Our Lord highlights here that leadership for Christians carries a great difficulty. Now all of us to some degree actually carry a level of leadership. It could be in your home, it could be leading your children, it could be leading a ministry, it could be leading in the church, but we all have some level of leadership. So what kind of difficulty is Jesus actually talking about when it comes to leadership? Well, leaders battle with the fear of failure. They're concerned about that if they make a mistake, I mean, it's really out there when you're a leader, right? So everybody sees you, they're concerned about that. They mistrust their own judgment. You know, what if I make a bad call? That goes on with leadership. I see that a lot with the guys that we're investing in. And some battle with insecurity. You know, they're fearing what other people might think of them as they make the hard call, as they make a hard decision and hit in a direction. They also struggle with alienating others. We say, what do you mean by that? Listen, if you're a spiritual leader, you believe in the absolute authority of the Scripture. You've got to be dogmatic. You've got to have convictions. And yet at the same time, You hold those convictions with an attitude of humility and love for others and especially love for Christ. And that's quite a tension to maintain. Absolute dogmatism and yet holding that in a heart of humility. Christian leaders also battle with defensiveness. they got to justify their positions, etc. So how do you know what kind of leader you are? And how do you know what kind of leaders you have? Well, it's pretty simple. 
The answer is really direct. Just put them in a crisis and see what happens. It's interesting. There's already been articles written about leadership during the COVID-19 crisis. And I've read almost every one of them. And interesting enough, they're very descriptive of the lay leadership of this church, which I rejoice over. Far from perfect, but the FBC, especially the lay leaders, navigated through this crisis better than anyone that I know. And what made FBC, and this is not bragging, it's just marveling over the fact that what made it so unique is they did it together. Uh, I've seen some leaders who have led, you know, in situations individually, but never a group of people leading together, and it's been quite a blessing. And so interesting enough, it's a crisis that exposes the heart of a leader. And if leadership is defensive or doubting or selfish or fearful or weak or insecure, the crisis is going to expose that kind of heart. But if those leaders, and in your leadership, you're confident in God's character, if you're deep in his word and his promises, if you're resting in sound doctrine, and if you're, in a sense, experienced enough in God's walk and God's work, even though you'll still struggle with those internal battles that I just mentioned, understand there will be a great confidence in God's word, there'll be a great confidence in God's spirit, and confidence in their Lord and not in themselves. And true leadership will actually initiate spiritual direction and obedience to God's word, no matter what, even if their ship is sinking, even if it's going down. Every Christian here, every leader here in some area, and every one of you is in leadership in some area, even you students need to understand to grow in leadership you're going to be tested in that leadership. You're going to see what kind of leader you are. And leadership is proven in a crisis, and it's proven over time. And that's what you see as you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27 and follow along in the outline that you've been given. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. If you're new with us, we're working our way through Acts. We're almost to the end, obviously. And in Acts 27... What you see here is Paul, a prisoner. He's not in charge of anyone. He's not in charge of anything. He's a prisoner in chains. He's on a ship, and yet, when faced with a crisis, like their ship's about to sink by the end of the chapter, Paul, the prisoner, becomes Paul, the principal leader. Paul, the prisoner, becomes the primary leader. He's in charge of what's going on by the end of this journey, which is crazy. And yet, it is that crisis which proved his leadership. Paul proved it during a storm-filled sail and a shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea. A journey is laid out for us by Dr. Luke in five parts there that makes up the five parts of our outline. They miraculously all start with the letter S. And it's the sail, the stay, the storm, the shipwreck, and the safety. Don't worry, I'll go back over it. Follow the map in your outline. Sail with Paul and his brothers, starting with point number one in your outline, the sail. The sail, here we go, we're on this journey, and observe verses 1 and 2, and watch leadership be proven. So it says, verse 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking on the uh, Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, 
we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now, you don't see it, but there are some shocking statements in those first couple of verses. Now, one thing that's not shocking is, did you notice the return of the pronoun we? Luke is back. He disappears after Luke 21, and now all of a sudden he's saying, but on the journey, on the way to Rome, as we're sailing, I am now with Paul. So he's sailing with Paul. That's not much of a surprise. What is a surprise and what is shocking, it's not only Paul, but incredibly also a Thessalonian friend named Aristarchus. See, it says, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. Now, why is that amazing? Well, it's unheard of that a prisoner would have companions travel with him. Paul's a prisoner on his way to Rome for trial. And historians tell us there's only two possible ways you could have companions on this kind of journey. Number one, Luke and Aristarchus and maybe some others said, we are and claim to be Paul's slaves. The only way they could be on that journey would be we're his slaves. The second one is that Festus made an exception for Paul and as a gesture of confidence in Paul to put him in good standing with Rome. One of those things have to. But this is shocking that Paul's got friends even though he's a prisoner. Now, I don't know about you, but something else in the book of Acts is impressing me, and that is I've been impressed by the integrity of the Roman centurion. Have you noticed that in our study of Acts? Maybe you, you haven't. You should have. In Acts 22, Claudius Lysias, I mean, he basically saved Paul twice from the mob, the Jewish mob. And as I read this chapter, I'm kind of impressed too with Julius. Julius here, the centurion, were, these were men of character. And as you read the New Testament, like Mark 5, Luke 7, Acts 10, here centurions were men that you could trust. These are military men you could trust. The Romans definitely had the ability in order to select men for leadership in their army, especially who oversaw 100 men. That's a centurion. And there's evidence that the Augustan cohort here, when he says that uh, Julius was a part of that, uh, that it's mentioned in verse 1, what that means is that Julius was stationed in Palestine during this time, and he was most likely the personal representative of the emperor Nero. And he would undertake special duties for Nero, such as escorting important prisoners. So this is a very unique situation. And I think I read this somewhere. I'm not sure sometimes where I get these sources from. But somewhere I read that the centurion Julius, he liked uh, citrus fruit. It may be the source of where we got the phrase orange Julius. So I just wanted to be aware of that. Uh, verse 2 mentions an Adirinian ship. And that, that's called that because it was built in the port of the city of Adramidian. As see it on the map there, Adramidian is one of the big shipyards of the first century. In verse 3, the next day, look at verse 3, we put in at Sidon. And Julius, the centurion, treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Now, this is also surprising. You say, why is this surprising? Paul's too important a prisoner to let him go wandering about. I mean, you can't just let him go and, and, and do whatever he wants. Uh, Paul, if uh, a couple things could happen, he is one who is very controversial. And so if the Jews saw him and caused a riot, it would increase the tension between Romans and Jews, which is something that Rome is trying to avoid and the Jews are trying to avoid as well. And so that would be a bad thing. If Paul's life was killed, that it actually would cause Julius to be executed. That's how serious 
this oversight care was going on here. And so why is it that Paul's allowed to go to his friends? Well, Julius trusted Paul. The centurion trusted Paul and believed the apostle wouldn't do anything to bring him harm. Uh, This reminds all leadership that if you really love people, you will develop trust. Now, I just want to make this point really strongly. Some of us say, well, what is the basis of friendship? What is the foundation of a marital relationship? You want to write this down. Trust and respect. Trust and respect. You can love someone you trust and you can love someone you respect. And Paul built that very quickly and establishes a a sense of trust and respect in this context with Julius. And high school students, with your friends, it's those who are truly your friends, forever friends, are those you trust and those you respect. Not those you fear who would turn on you, but those you trust and respect. And in married couples, it's never do anything to undermine trust and respect. You're going to see this be built here in this context. So understand, there is an amazing relationship that's being established here and people will trust a leader when they believe that he thinks more highly of others than himself and Paul cared about Julius Julius knew it knew it here and so he trusted him to go off now the small gang fellowship when ministered with the church of Sidon at this stop it's probably formed this church of Sidon was probably formed at the death the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, who's the one who led and oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen? It was Saul who became Paul. So he's the one that, in a sense, forced this church to be formed in another area, and now here's Paul coming alongside them, ministering to them. Is that ironic to you? I mean, wait, think about it just for a second. Paul, who was a hater of Christians, forced this this church to be formed And now he is so transformed, so unique, so different as a believer that now he's ministering to that same church. That's the power of the gospel, friends. That's life-changing. That's dramatic. And so here they are getting ready to set sail again. They gave care to Paul, these church people. Verse 3, it tells us they cared for him. It's probably in the format of provisions, possibly some uh, medical help for the journey. But from the very beginning, this voyage is not very encouraging. Look at verses 4 and 8. Luke uh, describes their sailing as slow. They even change ships to a larger grain ship. That didn't help. The sea is choppy with winds. It's blowing at them. Uh, it's really becoming difficult. Twice, Paul uh, you know, is here uh, experiencing all kinds of slowness on the ship. And Luke uses the word difficulty twice which means that almost not moving at all, belabored effort. You ever tried to swim against the current or swim against a riptide? How frustrating that is. Or you tried to ski uphill, doesn't work very well. Or run in the sand, that's what's going on here. It's belabored effort. It's not getting anywhere. So they're sailing on the south side of Crete for shelter. Verse 8 says they finally arrive at a harbor called Fair Havens. Number two in your outline, the stay. The stay. They stay at Fair Havens. The crew kind of catches their breath at Fair Havens, waits a long time, many, many, many days, for the winds to improve. They wait so long they've drifted into fall when these waters are then the most dangerous. Mid-September to mid-November are the most dangerous times in these waters, and that's where they're at. In verse 9, Luke references a fast. 
That is the Day of Atonement, already celebrated at the end of September. So now it's October. It is the absolute middle of the worst time to sail. They are in a really bad place. And one of the blessings of actually becoming a Christian, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again, transformed, is God gives you a, a sense to be able to see things a little bit clearly and much more accurately. We hope that there's a sense of increased common sense wisdom so Paul either speaks from that well of common sense, or he speaks from the well of being uh, given apostolic insight. But in verses 9 and 10, he demonstrates his leadership. So look at verses 9 and 10. Paul began to admonish them, verse 9, verse 10, and said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and a great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Now, Paul was dead on accurate. And verse 11, Julius, the centurion, verse 11, he was more persuaded by the ship's pilot and captain and by the majority. So verse 12, because they, in a sense, didn't want to stay at this particular harbor, wasn't the best harbor over the winter, they attempted to sail 40 miles, 40 miles to get to a, a harbor called Phoenix on Crete, and then stay the winter there. Now, Fairhaven was not the best harbor, but they could have remained there, but they chose not to. And like many, like many, they decided to head to Phoenix for winter. So there they go. Now, the boat leaders made several mistakes. They're impatient, right? They're running ahead, uh, kind of like us listening to actors who lie for a living or athletes whose fame is not based in their brains. Uh, Julius, the centurion, who was the ranking officer on this ship, because it's a Roman grain ship, listened to the wrong people. He did. He wasn't ready yet to listen to God's servant, who was telling him God's word, which is God's will. So Paul wisely counseled them to spend the winter at Fairhaven at the less than best harbor, but they didn't listen. So the boat leaders followed the majority rule, and the, Paul, the prisoner, uh, had little credibility as a result, Paul's outvoted here at this particular point by the majority, and who are often not correct. And finally, the boat boys were fooled by favorable circumstances. Take a look at verse 13. It says, when a moderate south wind came up, the very wind that they needed, this south wind, came along. It seemed to prove that Paul was wrong, and sailing would be smooth, and what a mistake they made. The point is this. Just think about this. Any thinking, any decision which involves advice from super wise people, majority rule, or favorable circumstances, but is also contrary to God's word, is a bad decision. Can you say amen to that? You know, sometimes we're fooled by circumstances. Sometimes we're fooled by people who give us advice. Sometimes we're fooled by the majority. And this is one of those situations where God's word trumps all. And we've got to put our trust and hope in God's promises. Great opportunities, ideal circumstances that contradict the Bible are always a bad idea. Always a bad idea. Human wisdom, a bad idea. So this resulted in the ship facing, number three in your outline, the storm. The storm, if you're tracking with me, verses 14 through 15, take a look at it. But before very long, they were in this nice little wind for a while, but before very long, they're rushed down from the land of violent wind called the Uroquila. 
And when the ship was caught in it, it could not face the wind, but gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along by it, hoping to reach the harbor of Phoenix in a day. All of a sudden, this wind disaster hit them like a, a train. You know how a train wrecks things. It just wrecked them, roaring down the mountains of Crete. It's a named windstorm. Uh, today, we'd call it a gregale. It's an east by northeast wind, Mediterranean wind. It is strong. It is cold. It is hurricane strength. And all who sail the Mediterranean are very familiar with it and avoid it like the plague. Verse 14, once the ship is caught in it, you understand sailing at all, they can't put the sails up. It is so strong, the sails have to remain down, and now the wind is just pushing the ship along. And they're throwing out anchors out of the back to stabilize their journey here because it's that kind of crisis, and it becomes now an issue of survival. It's out of control. So read what they do to try to survive. Take a look at this. Verse 16, they briefly shelter behind an island 23 miles southeast of Crete, and they pull in the lifeboat. It's swamped now. Because the water is, is, and the rain and the storm and the waves, etc., it name, uh, normally kind of follows along the large vessel, and it's now swamped, so they pull it in. It took Luke and uh, others, because Luke includes himself as those who helped pull it in, probably Paul and others to, and the soldiers to get it on board as well. And then verse 17, what they do is they loop ropes around the hull uh, of the ship and tighten them. Now, you may not understand, this is called frapping. Not fracking, that's an election issue in Pennsylvania. Frapping. Frapping is where you take the, here's the ship, and you take the ropes and you tie them around, and it holds the boat together because it's being assaulted and pounded and ripped to shreds. And these ropes actually keep the ship together, frapping the ship. So that's how severe the storm is. They're constant pounding of waves and wind. And then they, they, they feared uh, a graveyard. Now, this is not big for us. Uh, if you sail, you fear sinking. But if you travel a lot by ship, you often fear the most dangerous places. You know, uh, the only thing that we probably even aware of is like Bermuda Triangle kind of stuff. Well, around the world, there are ship graveyards, and they're afraid they're going to be blown all the way to North Africa near Sirtis, and that's where ships get wiped out. It's a ship graveyard. So they're dropping the sea anchor, which is a large rock or metal pieces, uh, lowered by a rope off the, off the stern, the back of the boat, to act as a drag or a stabilizer to slow their progress. And in verse 18, they're continuing like a cork. Uh, violently, it says, they're storm-tossed. Now, what that means is if you're on the deck of the ship, there's a strong possibility that a wave's going to come and wash you off the deck. If you're under the deck, all you're thinking about is, if this boat goes down, I'm going to die because I'm under the deck and I'm going to die. So that's the situation that they're in. No matter where you go, you're thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> it's a pretty bad situation. And then as a result, they start tossing cargo overboard. Three days later, verse 19, and then they even <laughs> toss the ship's tackle overboard. Now, that's not the sailing items. That's at this particular word is the furniture and miscellaneous equipment not necessary for sailing the ship. They're still going to try to sail. But verse 20 there's no sun by day, there's no stars by night, so they don't know where they are. And when you don't know where you are, what do you fear? You fear the ship graveyard, where all the rocks are and you're going to get wiped out. So what are you thinking about? You know, at night, right? When you can't see anything, you're thinking your most fears, your biggest fears. That's where they're at. And so the storm is so violent, 
All they experience, and maybe you've experienced this, and most of us have not, white caps, stinging spray, the wind is so fast, violent rocking, elevator swells. You know what I mean by that? You go up 40 feet, you're down 60 feet, you're back up 40 feet, and you're doing this all the time. Talk about seasickness, right? Even experienced sailors cannot handle that for very long. And on, on, uh, there's looming dread of death by drowning. It's so bad that it says even the experienced sailors had given up all hope of survival. And it's at this gloomy moment when everybody's saying we're all going to die. This is so bad. It's precisely at this dark point when Paul's leadership shines the brightest. Take a look at what happens here. Verse 21, because of seasickness, the difficulty of preparing food in the storm, Possibly because the storm had damaged much of the food. Verse 21 says they had gone a long time without food. Then Paul stood up in their midst. The professional sailors and the soldiers had not listened to Paul when they were safely anchored in Fairhaven, but now they are desperate men fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their lives here. For credibility, Paul reminds them, verse 21. Now this sounds like an I told you so. It's really not meant that way. Take a look at what he says. Men... You ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage or loss. Now, if you left it there, that would be an I told you so. But basically what he's saying is he's not rebuking them. He's giving them a message of hope. Verse 22, he says, keep your courage. And then this promise causing everyone to cup their ears. He says something and, and it's kind of like, you ever been in that situation where you go, say what? You say that again? Say that one more time. He goes, take courage, and he says, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Whoa! Now, why should we believe you, Paul? Oh, because this godly man has had a divine revelation. Verse 23, for this very night, an angel of God, to whom I belong, I love that, and to whom I serve, I love that, stood before me saying, he actually is not saying, he's commanding. He commands Paul, Paul, do not be what? Afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar, which tells us that that's what he did. And behold, God has granted you, you Paul, all those who are sailing with you. Don't you love that? Everybody's saved because Paul's on board. That's the guy you want to go sailing with, right? The guarantee. That's the guy, right? Everybody else on the ship's going to benefit from the Lord's protection of Paul. And by God's mercy, unbelievers really today have no idea how much they owe to the presence of righteous men and women among them. That is true of our day right now. I don't want to talk about it right now, but I'm telling you, our country is benefiting from believers. It's benefiting from believers. may not all turn out the way you want, but it's benefiting from believers. And Paul is commanding them all, verse 25, command you, keep up your courage. It literally means keep hope. Keep hope, men, for I believe that God, that it will turn out exactly as I have said. I believe the God that it's going to turn out exactly as as I have said, and then perhaps for the benefit of any skeptics who might have also wondered how they're going to escape drowning, he adds in verse 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. But that's pretty specific. Would you agree? There's no islands in sight right now. And like all good leadership, Paul spoke with authority, declaring God's word. You must stand 
on the promises of God during times of crisis and seasons of fear. Some of you just missed that. Let me say it one more time. This is for you today, right now, on this date. You must stand on the promises of God during times of crisis and seasons of fear. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. And like a good leader, Paul strengthened others while manifesting unwavering faith. And it will come to pass, he said. It will come to pass. The stage is set for the most dramatic conclusion of this ill-fated voyage. And that is number four in your outline, the shipwreck. The shipwreck. Verse 27. You know, it's funny. When you get to the shipwreck, you think, wow, Paul was in a shipwreck. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11.25, he actually refers to, written three years earlier, that he has already been involved in three shipwrecks. Three. This is the fourth shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you don't want to travel with the Apostle Paul. Interesting enough, Paul would pay any price to get the gospel proclaimed. It didn't matter. He'd face any danger. He'd go anywhere. And at this point, Paul's looked to now as the leader. He alone remained calm, wise, and in control. And he had the absolute trust in God's promise through the angel to save all those on the ship. His presence and God's promise was the only thing that sustained them. But imagine experiencing this storm. Now, wait, wait, you got to feel this. Imagine experiencing this storm for two weeks. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you, so let's call it half a month. Half a month you're on this boat experiencing this storm. Where would you be? Where would your heart be at that point? Look at verse 27. But when the 14th night came, two weeks, half a month, as we're being driven about the Adriatic Sea, this is not letting up at all. About midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Verse 28 and 29 Still at night, they heard possibly the waves crashing on the shore, so they checked the depth marked with ropes with a weight on the end, it's called sounding, to determine the land was near. They went from 120 feet depth to 90 feet, and they recognized that they're approaching land. So in order to prevent from smashing on the coastal rocks of the land they had not yet seen, they dropped four anchors on the back, the stern, to slow and steady their progress while waiting for daylight. And then in verse 30, if you look at it, a few sailors tried to feign helping and tried to escape using the lifeboat. But Paul warned Julius because it was a literal reference that the angel gave him because God's promise was for all, verse 24, to be saved together. God has granted to you all those who are sailing with you. There was such a strong confidence now in Paul's warning that they actually cut the lifeboat loose. Their last hope of escape. They go, that's it, we're cutting it loose. That's how much they believe Paul at this point. Wow. They're now slowed with the bow to the front, pointing to the shore, off in the dark, awaiting for them. So like a good leader, Paul prepares them. Look at verse 33. He's encouraging them all to take food. Now, this is the first time in two weeks light began to appear. Paul encouraged the entire ship to eat. It might have been, you know, seasickness nobody ate. It might have been that the necessity for constant watch that nobody ate. It might have been the lack of food from lightening the ship that nobody ate. Or it may be the desire to fast because they were trying to please their pagan gods that nobody ate. But it kept the passengers from eating. So Paul's words and example encouraged them. And like a great leader, he's in front of 275 people. There's actually 276 people on this boat. Uh, Luke names the number. 
and he sets an example by eating. He encourages them to eat and uh, as to be ready for what is ahead. Paul had a balanced breakfast here, right? You know what a balanced breakfast is? Prayer plus food. That's what we had. And Paul encouraged them. And he said, verse 34, not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. What that means to me is no one will go bald on this voyage. Uh, it actually means no haircuts on this ship. Uh, it actually means no hair loss from stress here. No, it means you are absolutely protected. Absol- it's a Jewish idiom, and basically it's a proverb. It says, absolute protection is given from you and to you from God every single possible way. No one is going to lose their life. Verse 38, after everyone had eaten enough, get ready for what's ahead, they lighten the ship, they toss the gear uh, and out and the grain that's been stored in the hold below. And none of the 276 passengers recognized the land, but they spotted a bay, a sandy beach, where they f- think that they could then, you know, kind of drive the ship onto the beach and ground it there. Verses 40 to 41, they cut the ropes holding the anchors. They raised just the front sail, that's the head sail or the jib, and they made for the beach. And just short of the shore, though, they got stuck on a reef. And the bow is facing the beach, the front of the ship, toward the shore. But the stern, the back of the ship, began to be crushed by the force of the waves. Now, have you experienced large surf? Anybody? Large, giant surf. I had the kind of dad, Navy man, and uh, he wanted us to be prepared for the ocean. And literally, I'm 13 years old, and he actually had me go out and swim with him in 13-foot surf. I am not making this up. I am not exaggerating. The lifeguard even said it went up to 18 foot. You know what that looks like when you're on the surface of the water and there's a 13 foot wave above you? That's a lot of water. And uh, we had to figure out how to survive out there, which was crazy. But you've seen how waves destroy things, right, in the ocean? And immediately, once this boat is stuck on the reef, the waves from the back are just crashing in and tearing this boat to shreds. And there's 276 people on here. And that brings us back to not only the sail, the stay, the storm, the shipwreck, but now number five, the safety. Verse 42 and following, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, now who has a great relationship with Paul, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who would swim would jump overboard first, if you can swim and get to land, and then the rest should follow by floating on some planks or other various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought to what? Safety, to the land. Motivated by duty and the devil, the soldiers want to kill uh, Paul under Julius here, and yet all the other prisoners, they want to just kill them so they don't get, you know, uh, 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 accused of allowing them to escape. And Julius stopped them and then commanded the passengers to swim or float or uh, basically somehow make their way to shore. And just as God promised, who knows all, is all-powerful, can always accomplish his will, just as he promised, every single one of the 276 passengers were brought safely to land. They land on the island of Malta, uh, famous for dairy goats. <laughs> That's a great fame. I, I think sometimes, too, they might be known for tasty desserts. You've, of course, heard of the Malta milkshake. So that's a, a part of something, and you should probably know what I, I don't say. Um, but here's a God who spared 275 people because of one man. The Apostle Paul, how precious are his children 
to our God. And God holds back his judgment on this wicked world because the church is still in the world. But once we're taken away, his judgments will fall. So take this home with me if you would. Leadership is not a title that you have. Leadership is an ability that you have. It's not a title, it's an ability. Evaluate your leadership with your friends, your, your kids, your ministry, your work. Leadership is, a leader is to be trusted. Trusted because of respectful actions, integrity, they keep their word. Uh, basically, Paul very quickly convinced the centurion that he was more concerned with the centurion than himself, and so he was trusted by him. Leader uh, takes initiative. Uh, out of the council at Fairhaven, he initiates even though they didn't listen to him, he initiates sound counsel. A leader speaks with authority in the midst of the raging storm with all on board. He says it seemed like madness, but he has confidence in what God has said and God has promised, and he speaks with authority. Listen, here's a rule of life. When it's your idea, speak very carefully. When it's God's word, speak boldly. You know the difference? People ask me, what color car should I get? I don't answer the question because I don't care and my tastes are awful. But when it comes to God's word, it's like, no, this is absolute truth. There's a big difference. Would you agree with that? Be careful about speaking dogmatically about your opinion. But don't, don't hesitate to speak absolute confidence in God's truth. A leader strengthens others. Three times Paul encouraged the terrified passengers. Twice he told them not to lose hope. Once he told them to eat. He is confident. He's not one who, and and you test your leadership. Do you drain other people of their confidence? Or do you actually build up others in their confidence in God? A leader never compromises his absolutes. Even when he said it all will be saved. He said, look, they, they shouldn't leave the ship. And so they cut that boat loose. And he refused to compromise what God had promised. So you want to be that as well, if you're going to be a strong spiritual leader. A leader leads by example. He showed them his confidence by eating in front of all of them. And leadership basically is not pushing people from behind. It's leading them from the front. And a leader never gives up. 14 days. Listen, the only way to describe this is your 14 days in the heavy cycle of your washing machine. That's what they were experiencing. It was horrific. And yet they never, ever, no matter how difficult life can be, they trusted God and he trusted God and relied on his word. Letter B in your outline, trusting God through a crisis requires you belong and you serve him. I need you to see a verse one more time because it's so vital to your understanding of Paul's heart and God's word. Look at verses 23 through 25 one more time. Paul says uh, the promise that he's reiterating here. For this very night, the angel of the God to whom I belong. Do you get that? The God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that God... That God and God will turn out exactly as I have told you. I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. And Paul reminds everybody on board, he belongs to God and serves him. And he reminds everybody that they are only rescued because of the one true God 
who existed. One of the things I love to do on an airplane when I'm flying by myself and somebody sits next to me and they're asking me as I'm looking at my books or writing through some messages or, you know, basically they could see that I'm some sort of preacher or teacher or Christian and they'll go, are, are you a Christian? I go, well, Jesus Christ is a personal friend of mine. That's where I start. Listen, friends, we need to let people know that we know Christ, that, that we belong to Him, that we serve Him, that He's the one that we love, that we walk with. And, and you live in a world right now on the edge of a storm. Every once in a while, you're reminded, as we are right now, just how unstable our world is. Finally, in America, we know what it's like to live in an unstable world. And a family member dies, or you lose a job, or your friends betray you, or you get really ill, or you say something or do something that makes you feel so guilty you could barely breathe. You live through a pandemic. You live through social upheaval. You live through civil war. And the only way to survive that sinful storm is to belong to God. And there's only one way to be a servant, and that is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And believe that He is God who came to take your place and die for your sins in your place and rise again and to have Him be your first love, your shepherd, your master, and your savior. And that you could say with absolute confidence, I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my friend. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. You need to pray, God, open my heart so I can dependently put my faith totally in you, directionally turn from my sin and repentance and follow you. And the only way to survive a crisis, the only way to survive a crisis is to belong to Jesus Christ. And the only way to belong to Jesus Christ is to surrender and say, I have no resources, I can't save myself, only you can do this. I give you my life. I exchange all that I am for all that you are. And today is the day for you to genuinely belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the incredible example of the Apostle Paul for the way that he led, for the way he had confidence in your word. He stood on your promises. He was unshakable no matter what was going on, no matter how he was shaken about and stormed about. It didn't matter. He was on the rock. He was on the foundation. He was trusting in you. And Father, if there are any here who have not surrendered to you, have not been forgiven by you, have not been born again by you, would you please draw them to yourself awaken their heart, their desperate need to surrender to you and to believe in you and to believe that you came as a man and died in their place and rose from the dead and to then follow you and to be transformed by you. Father, that is our prayer, that you would accomplish that for your glory. And for the rest of us, can we have confidence in your word in the midst of the storm? And can we rise up and be leaders of people around us because we have confidence not in ourselves, but in your word and your truth. Help us to take that extra step to be verbal in our affirmations of who you are. Let us be a bold people. And Father, encourage our hearts that no matter what storm we're going through, you're going to hold us. You're going to protect us. And we know that you will do what's right because you never, ever make a mistake. 
and we love you for that. So we pray that our response today would be to bring you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.